You're listening to Educate on TalkZone.com. Back to Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our ongoing discussion with our special guest regarding experiential education. Once again, welcome back to our show and our ongoing discussion regarding experiential education. Joining us now will be Dr. Anita R. Tucker. Dr. Tucker is an associate professor at the University of New Hampshire in the Department of Social Work, where she is the co-founder and coordinator of the dual degree MSW-MS program in adventure therapy. She holds two clinical social work licenses in Massachusetts and New Hampshire and has over 10 years of experience working with youth in clinical settings who use experiential education and adventure experiences for therapeutic purposes. In addition, her research focuses specifically on documenting the process and outcomes of these interventions on clinical populations. To date, she has 16 peer-reviewed journal articles on the topic, is a research scholar for the Outdoor Behavioral Health Research Collaborative, and vice chair of the Association for Experiential Education Therapeutic Adventure Professional Group. Anita, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, I greatly appreciate your time. Uh, Anita, before we go forward, I had another question for Maury. Uh, Maury, we already touched on some of this the first half of the show, um, but tell us how do people benefit from experiential learning? So as we said before, I think the primary benefits are that it's very so people are engaged in the learning, they're thinking is engaged in the learning, they benefit because it's variable and there's some uncertainty to it, so that allows for that you know, real-world messiness to uh, begin to be understood or, or interacted with. Um, it's very applied. You know, uh, the, one of the benefits is that doing experiential learning, I can apply it to whatever the issue is that I'm dealing with right there, but also to potential future things that I might come up with that need to make decisions about. And uh, there's just a benefit from interacting with others and that sense of belonging and connection with others in the shared experience. Additionally, I think it needs a variety of learning styles. So no matter what you're learning, there's a place for you to be able to connect, and so it's very accessible. Um, for me, with my clients, I find that my clients um, tend to learn skills and knowledge faster, are able to apply it faster into their own environment, that they're more open to the feedback and reflection, um, and they're able to get insight from themselves and from their experience versus looking at me as, here's the expert, what is the answer, what do I have to do? And so I noticed that my, what we call length of stay, but how long people are in counseling is much shorter than it used to be when I wasn't using experiential um, education in the counseling environment because it's just able to transfer that so much faster. Excellent. Now, Anita, piggybacking on that, how would you describe the application of experience education and adventure techniques for therapeutic purposes? Well, I think Lori did a great job of explaining the overall kind of theory around experiential practice. And um, really what makes it different from traditional therapy is this idea, which um, Maury just, Lori and Maury, they're very similar names, but Maury just <laughs> touched on. And this idea of what she was really talking about is the ABCs of adventure therapy, which is the effective behavioral and cognitive levels, because it's holistic. So we get out of the chair. We don't necessarily 
uh, reflect on a client wouldn't come in and say, this is what happened to me this week. We would be sharing those experiences, but we can get at problems from three different levels. We can see behavior and talk about behavior. We can talk about feelings, and we can talk about thoughts. And we can intervene on all those levels because when we act experientially or actively, we're engaging those three levels. And so it's really, it's this, and the key to, and Maury described this already, but she didn't use the word prescriptive or intentional because really the therapeutic piece of it is the intentional and prescriptive use of these tools, whether it's her stand-up paddleboarding she was talking about or her sailing or backpacking or rock climbing or experiential activities or those sorts of practices or expedition-based. Those are the adventure tools, and it's the prescriptive and intentional use of them by a licensed clinician that makes them therapeutic. Going out and backpacking can be recreational, but when there's meaning to the backpacking and there's challenge and you're dealing with crises in the field and effective issues or behavioral issues and there's a therapist there talking about clinical goals, it becomes a whole different sort of intervention. And I think when I first started in this field, there weren't a lot of social workers doing it, and some people would refer to it as that adventure thing, which was very funny. And I said, no, it's not. we're not just playing. Although we do integrate play, it's way more complicated than just play. And so I spent a lot of time trying to explain how, you know, those pieces of prescriptive and intentionality and needing to understand, like, you have to be trained clinically to be able to look at behavior, talk about cognition, you know, work with clients around their affect to figure out clinical goals and then match the intervention really to the assessment of where the client is at. So for Maury's case of the stand-up paddleboarding, you know, before choosing that activity, she's worked with those clients and said, this is, they really need to work on this specific goal. And while stand-up paddleboarding has a lot of frustration to it, what a perfect intervention that I will intentionally guide with my clients to get to the, the outcomes that I want. Uh, actually, I'm glad you both uh brought up the, the, the point with regards to research and the differences in the therapy. I made an observation, um, I guess many moons ago, I guess it was the late 90s, maybe the early t- 2000s. I used to go on uh, trips just because of my experience in, in the wilderness. I was asked to join uh, a friend of mine who actually works with emotionally disturbed teens. And we would take a hand-picked group of emotionally disturbed teens on uh, days in the Adirondacks or the White Mountains. And during that time, you might have two teens who are, when they're on campus in the residential setting that we were taking them from, they would be at, they'd be in separate gangs, they would have uh, their different cliques, they would be at each other's throat, literally. And yet when we brought them on these trips, they would be, they would help each other tie each other's shoe. They would, you know, they would, their, their interaction and engagement with each other were, was phenomenal when you took them out of the, their known environment and brought them into a foreign environment. Um, is there any research to, to back that or any other examples where that's the case? Well, I think the idea is this idea of novelty. Um, so we bring kids into novel environments where they feel um, this idea of um, risk, but risk is perceived risk and perceived difference. So this idea that we give them challenges and things that are not normal, novel, they have to react because they're kind of in an uncomfortable situation because they're not used to the experiences that we're giving to them. Um, and one of the key pieces, I love your example, because the therapeutic piece of that example is, all right, we give them a novel novel experience, they have this behavioral reaction, they're working together, the therapy lies in how do we get them to transfer that behavior back, right? 
And what we do is we hope to, in the therapeutic setting, build competency and comfort in those behaviors where they feel confident enough to be able to do that and confident in themselves to be able to go back and listen and say, you know, that guy's not so bad. You know, he had my back or whatever that looks like. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's the application of the novelty that makes people, we talk about dissonance and this idea that we're, you know, uncomfortable, not in a, way, a place where we're panicked, but we, we apply risk to a fashion, we apply a sense of risk to these students or these therapy clients or whoever we might work with. Um, and people have different ideas of whether risk is, you know, has to be there or not. But some of the research just suggests that this idea of risk or dissonance or um, discomfort or new learning environments provides uh, an opportunity for change, right? Because they're they're faced with something that's new, and um, maybe the old ways of reacting and behaving don't work. I have a good example. Um, I used to work with youth, uh, foster care youth, and I ran a group twice a week, closed group of foster care youth in Massachusetts. Um, and we used to do some activities on the challenge course, and one is called um, a multi-swing, and it's where the kids stand on a platform, use like a Tarzan rope to, to try to get the whole group over to the other platform. And this one little boy was always a bully. And so he mm. kept his bullying behavior, and they failed. They never got anywhere. They were stuck on the platform for like 20 minutes. And as a facilitator and the therapist, I let this happen. We were far into the group, and no one really checked this child and his behavior. So after, right, intentionality, right? So I knew this probably wouldn't work. I kind of thought, well, we'll see how they do. They've been successful, but they need a challenge because this one kid really wasn't really changing his behavior. So we sat down afterwards, and we did some pipe cleaner sculptures because what Maury was talking about is this idea of metaphors. Right? We like to use metaphors as well as in our processing. We don't just talk. We can use clay or postcards or trinkets or sculpture and those sorts of stuff to help youth like kind of talk about their experiences, bring the abstract into the concrete. So for this group, I had them sit down and say, make a pi- with a partner, take these pipe cleaners and sculpture something that you think reflects your experience in this activity. And what ended up happening was a lot of the sculptures reflected frustration. And mm. I said, well, what's that about? And I was able to really tap into the youth who were not this little boy, and they were able to say, you know, I'm really really frustrated by this child's behavior. And it was this great conversation where they challenged him in a very safe, loving environment about this behavior. Now, I don't want to say his behavior changed overnight, but it was the first time the group, not myself, because I can challenge him forever, teachers can challenge him, but really this idea of the group work that adventure often can use is that you hear it from your peers, not from the adults in the group, and it was really a powerful experience. And so that's one of the pieces I just love about adventure is this you know, in real time, natural consequences, your behavior is is an immediate uh, behavioral example of your choices, and you can use those as um, really the the stuff that fires the conversation around, well, okay, what would you do differently next time, and is this what happens at school, and how do we transfer that back? Excellent. In fact, I wish I had your information back then because as soon as we got the boys back to a familiar environment they reverted back to their previous behaviors Um, but at this time we need to take a short break stay tuned we'll be back with more right after this and now more educate on talkzone.com here's jonathan jefferson Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our distinguished guests on the topic of experiential education. 
Uh, Maury, I'd like to ask you, uh, how can people get support to implement experiential education? You know, of course, I can say here are a bunch of books and articles that you can read, which are great, fabulous information and good backup information for us. But with experiential education, I think that you need experiential support. So I have to promote the Association for Experiential Education. They're a nonprofit professional association, and that is my go-to place for professional development. I can go to conferences or workshops. Um, I can read their journal to see what research has been published. They have accreditation standards, so I know from my program what um, are the standards that I need to meet to have a good program. And even the, one of the professional groups has best practices, so I know what I'm striving for, as well as network with other professionals. So I think that having an association with other experienced, talented, amazing people that are using experiential education has really been invaluable for me to be able to um, continue in my profession and be able to have the business that I have. And they have um, groups for all different kinds of practitioners. So whether you're a traditional teacher in a classroom to an outdoor educator, there's a place for you there. So I highly recommend AEE. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, years ago when I was, uh, before I did my dissertation, I was considering doing a dissertation in experience education, and I was a member of uh, AEE. And um, I found out the difficulty of getting past IRB when you're dealing with children and something as uh, remote <laughs> as experienced education. And I quickly uh, changed my topic. <laughs> and that's changed too. It's it's growing as a field, and and those those challenges in terms of acceptance have really changed. I've seen a, a change since I entered the field in '94 significantly. Absolutely, um, Anita, you discuss in, in detail. Um, techniques for therapeutic purposes um, for experience education. Uh, can you give us what the traditional therapy would look like so people can see the, the vast difference between the two? Well, you know, I, I don't want to put labels on traditional therapy because there's amazing evidence-based practices that we might refer to as traditional therapy, cognitive behavioral, dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, they're, they're great practices, I think what I want to highlight is just the active nature of this versus some of the more traditional, and I use that loosely because there's great clinicians who do a 50-minute talk therapy hour where someone might sit across from you and talk um, mm -hmm. about, but they might, again, they're very intentional with their questioning and how they intervene, and they might, there's goal setting, so all those things are applied in a one-on-one -on -one clinical setting. It's just we do a little bit, we use the activities we heavily rely on the activities more than the talking. Um, and there's also, you know, I would say not everyone, you know, adventure therapy is not for everyone. Some people might benefit more from talk therapy. We just find with youth who traditionally are kind of therapeutic adverse and active, just developmentally it's an appropriate intervention, that we found that's the hook, you know, the risk-taking, the adventure piece. It gets them, and so the activity is used, and then we can draw out conversation around the behavior. So, so I don't want to—I definitely don't want to talk poorly about kind of the traditional therapeutic interventions. As a social work clinician, you know, I know some of those interventions. I'm trained in some of them. I've just found that for me professionally, this adventure-based, active piece really was working well with some of the really challenging youth that I was working with. Um, but yeah, that kind of traditional one-hour setting, or even traditional group therapy where there's 
there might be some talk, or but it's more, it's not active, it's more of talk, right? So this is really not talk-based. Talking is part of it, but it's also actively, so it's kinesthetic versus um, a more cerebral kind of talking piece, so mm-hmm. different. And if I may jump in to add to that, I think one of the, the benefits and what makes the experiential part so powerful is that it can be done in any of those therapeutic lenses. And certainly I'm trained in a lot of those traditional therapies, and I can use those in conjunction with a more active experiential method. So um, both of those can go hand in hand. How it might look different is, you know, people, they think about going to a counseling session that they're going to sit in a chair and I'm going to ask them lots of questions and they're going to respond. And then when they get here, they find that we're taking a walk or heading over to the sailboat or, you know, we're doing something completely different. And that may look different than what you see on TV as, you know, you're going to go and sit on the couch and be asked about the questions. So it's, the feel of it looks different, but it certainly can be integrated with whatever your therapeutic lens is. Hmm. I think Moy highlights the, the need for training, too, because we talk about this ideal of dual training or cross-training, that you need to not only be trained on your clinical skills, so you, all those different evidence-based practices and ways we train our clinicians, there's also you have to understand the use of activity and the safety requirements because it's one of the few fields where you're actually worried about physical safety. Mm-hmm. Right? When I have a client in my office, unless they trip at the door at the doorway, I'm not necessarily worried about them falling or which you know we have a great safety record and all of our safety records say it's safer to do adventure than it is to you know drive a car, play football, and other stuff. But I think that uh there's a real need for training this idea of you have to be cross-trained in both worlds to really be effective and understand how to utilize it effectively. And I'm, I'm glad you both mentioned the, uh, the validation of traditional methods. You know, although I don't have nearly your level of training, I was trained as a therapeutic adoptive foster parent and I have worked with at-risk kids for a while. And recently, actually this summer, I'm, I'm dealing with a youngster who, um, she's a, she can play any sport at a very high level since she was, uh, probably 12. We had, you know, she was playing varsity high school sports by the time she was in seventh, uh, eighth grade. And she's now struggling academically. And I found that the best way for me to reach her is just simply discussing topics that she feels she can't discuss anywhere else. Her parents are from Ecuador. So outside of soccer, there is really no conversation. And she's so into, the Yankees and Derek Jeter and basketball and LeBron James. And she has no one at home to speak to about that. And she, and she feels very uncomfortable speaking to girls, not to be stereotypical, but to her circle of girls about that because it, and she, and she feels intimidated by speaking to the boys about that. But for some reason, I found that I can open up any conversation with her to get to the root of her issues by simply saying, I don't think LeBron James is going back to the Miami heat and boom, we're in a long conversation about her grades now. So I wasn't trained in that. But I found that even though we're not having experiential experience, the fact that I, she felt comfortable talking on a topic that no one else she feels she can talk to about was able to open that door. So um, sometimes talk is good. <laughs> yeah, I think what you're talking about, too, is relationships. And talking and having conversation is part of that ability to have relationships. And then I go back to the experiential and adventure um, activities that we're doing, and that allows me to create relationships so much faster because we're having a shared experience. We're both on that boat together. Um, and and that has can kind of speed up that relationship process that allows me to ask those really uncomfortable 
or difficult questions or conversations for youth or adults um, mm-hmm. because we've had this shared experience. Okay. We only have a couple of minutes left. So, uh, Anita, tell us what the research has shown about uh, experience education's effectiveness. Well, so I just want to make sure that I'm real clear. Most of my research looks at the effectiveness of kind of adventure therapy. Um, so that's mm-hmm. the experiential application in a therapeutic setting. And uh, there's two different lines of research. One is really looking at there's the private pay settings like residential treatment centers as well as wilderness therapy programs. Um, and these these findings really have consistently supported psychological improvements of youth in these programs um, as reported by youth and their parents. And some recent research even suggests just the health benefits in terms of um, decreasing BMI and connecting, you know, increase, decreases in BMI to also increase psycho, psychological functioning, so really that health and wellness piece. And the other area of research which is gaining speed is this idea of the community-based environment. Programs like Maury's, who we've collaborated on evaluation, um, um, those sort of community-based programs um, that use adventure and application. Um, and those are important, too, because this idea is we're looking for a continuum of care. If a, if a client is acute enough and needs residential treatment, we want to be able to integrate them back into the community. And that sometimes maybe there's other alternatives to keep clients in the community um, in terms of accessibility because there, there isn't accessibility for folks to be able to afford some of these private pay systems. Although okay. Dr. Gass that I work with is working hard to try to get insurance to reimburse. Um, yeah. The research in the community-based environments is also supporting it. And the nice thing is I did a study with a colleague's program um, in Canton, Ohio, and we found that really when you added adventure to the traditional community-based mental health practices, there were significant higher decreases in problem severity, especially in the African-American and female youth when compared to those mm-hmm. who didn't have adventure therapy. Yeah. So okay, Dr. Tucker, it, Dr. Yeah. Tucker, this time I have to I have to uh, cut in because we're running out of time. Uh, we've been speaking with Maury Long, Executive Director of Life Adventures Counseling LLC and President of the Board of Directors for the International Association for Experience Education, and Dr. Anita R. Tucker, Associate Professor at the University of New Hampshire in the Department of Social Work and co-founder of the Dual Degree MSWMS Program in Adventure Therapy. Maury and Anita, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Educate with Dr. Jefferson and listen to other great programs on TalkZone.